What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Sebastian Junger. He's a journalist, author, and filmmaker. Throughout history, humans have been driven by the quest for two cherished ideals, community and freedom. The two don't coexist easily. We value individuality and self-reliance, yet we are utterly dependent on community for our most basic needs. Today, expect to learn how having kids in your 50s can give you more freedom than you might think, what happens when you lose 10 pints of blood and have a near-death experience, why fighting to the death was most common in free societies, how countries with freedom always get tempted toward tyranny, and much more. It is interesting thinking about freedom as a British person, because we don't really talk about freedom all that much. Not that we don't care about it, but just that compared with America especially, it's not a value that we hold up as an ideal. And looking at the history of it and how people have fought for it and what happens when you lose it and the dangers of having too much of it are quite insightful. In very exciting news, I am going to Austin tomorrow, this Friday. I am flying out to Austin, Texas for a few weeks. I will be recording out there and taking the show on the road, as it were. Video Guy Dean is staying in the UK, sadly, but I will be getting some awesome episodes done out there. I'll be catching up with David Perel and Aubrey Marcus and David Buss and Michael Malice. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun, and we'll see if I pick up a low-key Texan accent in the space of a few weeks. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But now it's time for the wise and wonderful Sebastian Junger. Sebastian Younger, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. A little while ago, you had a near-death experience. What was the story behind that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd been in a lot of combat as a journalist with American soldiers and 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 otherwise around the world, and I thought all you know, sort of danger was behind me. I'm in good health. I'm I'm an athlete. I'm in good shape. I have I got a heart rate of sixty and a blood pressure of one twenty over eighty, and everything you could want at age fifty. 58 last year, uh, and I felt a sudden uh, pain in my abdomen, and it was an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery, which is this like little artery that nobody thinks about, and it had an aneurysm, and it ruptured, and I started bleeding out into my own into my own abdomen, and by the time they got me to the ER, I'd lost three quarters of my blood, 
Um, and, uh, you know, when women, often when women die in childbirth, which tragically still happens, they're basically, they're dying the same way. They're bleeding to death and they can't find the, they can't find the, the, the bleed and they can't stop it and they lose the woman. And that's basically what was happening to me, but it was the result of an, of a ruptured aneurysm. And, um, you know, by, by the time they were, they were, they were cutting my neck open to put a line into my jugular to get enough blood into me fast enough to save me. By the time that was happening, uh, you know, I was I was actively dying and my my you know, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. Uh, my dad was a physicist, but my dead father appeared above me, sort of welcoming me, which is some an experience I'm still struggling to explain. And uh, and a black pit opened up underneath me and I was getting pulled into it. And, you know, it was the uh, I mean, I guess neurologically, the black pit of unconsciousness. I don't know. But it was a very. Uh, it's not like falling asleep. It's not like losing consciousness when you're having, about to have a medical procedure. I was getting pulled into a black hole and my dead father was there. And the last thing I said to the doctor was, you got to hurry. You're losing me right now. And um, they, you know, they did their work, their amazing work and they saved me. And, um, you know, it was touch and go for a while because I need, they needed another eight hours to find the leak inside me. And um, you know, when you're transfused like that, I had 10 units of blood. And when you're transfused like that, you know, other problems happen. Like you start to get, you run the risk of organ failure and, and, and things like that. And, and luckily I'm healthy and my body managed to stay alive for eight hours until they, they, they fixed the leak. And I'm very, very lucky to be here. Most people die from this and I'm very lucky to be here. That's an insane story. I have a friend that I met last year in Dubai, and he had he was put under a uh, induced coma for three months or so. And during that time, he lived an entire another life for two years in Singapore. And he could tell you the name of the company that he had, the brand of toothpaste he put on his toothbrush, where his ties were kept inside of his apartment. He would be able to tell you the name of the street that he went to. And he was selling virtual reality software in this other life. And he was testing it on himself. And he had a full team. He had a sales team. He had developers. And he would go into the experience, the virtual reality experience inside of this other world while he's laid in a hospital bed and he doesn't know. He would go into it and he would hear people talking. And at one point, he gets trapped inside of the virtual reality world for two months inside of this dream. So this is like two layers down of Inception. And in that, he can hear people speaking to him and he doesn't know what it is. And then eventually he gets his fingers into a corner and pries it apart. And that's when he wakes up. But during this other world that he lives in for two years, while he's away for about three months, his father dies. So his dad, his dream father dies while his real father's still alive. And they're watching him while he's in bed, Paul, in bed in this induced coma. And they see that he's weeping. He's got tears streaming out the corner of his eyes. And that's when he's burying his dead father in the dream while his real father watches him cry about the fact that he's had to do it. Crazy. That, that's insane. Did he ever go to Singapore to look up the places he had you know imagined he was like, i, I he don't ever... think he has no wow that's insane there's a lot of you know again i'm an atheist i feel like i have to keep saying this uh but there's a lot of things we don't understand and and i, I i'm very open to the idea that there are dimensions of reality that we don't understand or haven't even guessed at and that in those threat in these threshold states like in a coma uh or in uh in a um sort of um transportative religious 
an ecstatic religious state or on the threshold sort of, of death. Yeah, yeah that, that we sort of like gain some sort of like entry, some glimpse into another another dimension of reality. I, I can understand how that would be true. Um, and I think my father, the physicist, would also say, yes, there's things we don't understand. And that means that there are phenomena that we can't explain. Even if there isn't some otherworldliness going on, even if it's not a different plane that you're tapping into, sheer the sheer fact that your brain decided to create some sort of kind of like a polarity thing, it's sort of welcoming, there's something symbolic going on with regards to darkness and father. And, and then with Paul, this near-death experience uh, in an induced coma is semi-common. It's, it's like rarely common. Um, and... Right even if all it was was the brain trying to create some sort of an existence in which he could keep ticking over, even if that's it, like just yeah. that is pretty miraculous itself. Yeah. yeah. Well, my understanding of the medical understanding of an induced coma is that there's no brain activity at all. So I wonder how Supposedly. they, you know, I wonder how they um, understand that. But likewise with death, you know, like that there's no brain activity. And I, you know, I mean, I was entering a very strange place and, and when I was on that threshold and, um, uh, you know, I've I've done some research into it, and uh, and uh, it, it, my experience is a very common one. And it's interesting because they ha there are various neurological explanations, like low blood oxygen, um, uh, endogenous DMT in your brain that gets released, um, and ketamine, endogenous ketamine that gets released, things that will produce visions and hallucinations in in test subjects. But when they when they expose people to those effects, like ketamine. People have wild hallucinations. They don't see the dead. They don't see dead relatives, right? You have to be dying for that to happen. And, um, and that, that's the part that it's, that it's very common for people who are dying, and it's not really part of the ketamine experience for otherwise healthy people. And that's where the mystery sort of begins for me. Yeah, I am familiar from my days partying. I'm pretty familiar with ketamine, and I never saw any of my dead parents coming back even though both of them were alive which means is it set and setting which is something that psychedelics researchers talk about is it the fact that you've been primed because you feel like you're about to die so that there's some sort of predisposition toward thinking that this is the sort of vision that you may have or is there maybe something else going on is it a blend of other sort of chemicals pretty interesting well yeah, I mean, I didn't know I was dying so uh, I, I mean, I was oh, shocked fuck yeah, of course, you just thought yeah. that you were no, yeah. I mean, I said, I said to the doctor, you're losing me right now. And I meant, I felt myself getting pulled away, but I had no idea that I was dying. It never crossed my mind. I mean, I, I just had a tummy ache, right? And I felt funny. I mean, I, and you know, my, I was pretty loopy because I had, I had a, um, uh, uh, you know, my blood log oxygen levels were incredibly low. My hemoglobin was 1.2. I mean, it's hard to find that on the internet, right? I mean, almost no one goes that low. That, that's, inc that, that's incompatible with life. Right, is what I was told. 1.2 hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is what transports oxygen. So basically, I mean, I was running on fumes and uh, I had no idea that I was dying. The next day, the, the nurse in the ICU said, we, no one knows how you made it. Like you almost died yesterday. No one knows why you're still here. It was completely shocking to me. So maybe there's some kind of body knowledge that understands you're dying on a kind of animal level and produces the appropriate hallucinations. Entirely possible. Or there's something weird going on in reality, and there's something we don't understand about death, and that you know dead people have some dimension of existence 
that we don't we don't understand that we that we ourselves access on the threshold of death. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, but it's a it's a it's a legitimate question. Didn't you say that there were a couple of things that had occurred, weird embodied senses, sort of subconsciously things that you'd gone through in the time pe- leading up to that incident as well? Yeah, I mean, for many years, for no reason that I can identify, and I, I'm a I was an endurance athlete when I was young. I'm very for for a, a person of my age. I'm very healthy. I'm sort of high performance human, you know, and and uh, um. Uh, for many, but for many years, I, I I had this bizarre certainty that I would die before I was sixty, you know. And I'm not really eligible for you know a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. I, I you know I just have a constitution that makes that very unlikely. Um, I, I don't know why, and that's exactly what would have happened, but for this sort of miracle. But but also like two days before, um, I was woke, woken up by a nightmare. That, that I had died and I'd crossed over and I was looking back at my family and they were grieving and I couldn't go back to them because I'd crossed over and I was just like anguished. I, I, I have two little girls, you know, four at the time they were three and one and I was absent and, and my wife and I was completely anguished that I'd sort of screwed up and had died sort of by accident. And, uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't go back again and I was anguished and it woke me up and that was 36 hours before exactly that happened crazy given the fact that you had such a profound experience has there been a lasting mindset shift around how you see the world or a change in your behavior in any way well i you know i'm 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 a little bit more open to you know what you might call the great mystery of life and of death you know a little a little more open to the idea that it may not be that we might be something more than purely biological beings and that our everything that that we are ends at the moment of death. Uh, I mean, you know, I've seen dead bodies. I've seen people who are dead an hour. I've seen people who are dead a week. I've seen people who are dead a month, right? It's hard to imagine when you look at those individuals that there's anything remaining of that, what who that person was, right? I can tell you right now, like, it just, wow, you're some skin and a bunch of bones. Like you are no longer you, right? So that, but now I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I just don't understand what happened to me. And people keep saying to me like, uh, well, you know, are you reconsidering your atheism? You know, like, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm like, I didn't see God. I saw my father, you know, like, I don't know. God doesn't necessarily have anything to do with this, but the, the presence of my father does raise questions about, the nature of reality in a physical sense and the nature of death in a physical sense. And um, so uh, other than that, you know, I would say, I mean, it's sort of, sort of cliche, but all we know we have for sure is right. At, we don't even know that we have today. We, we know we have this moment, right? This moment that you and I are both in right now, we know for sure we have that because we're in it. And literally moment by moment, we, you cannot absolutely know that the, even the next moment will come, much less the day the next day will come. Right. You don't know. There was a lady about a week ago who was woken up. He was, she was asleep and she was woken up because a meteor, the size it was set, it was said of it. It seems quite gendered. Uh, so it's a sort of funny. But this was in the media. A, a meteor the size of a large man's fist. I just find that in this modern era quite a funny way to describe a meteor. But anyway, a meteor the size of a large man's fist w- walloped into the pillow next to her head, right? 
she was three inches from being annihilated, right? Fuck. And uh, yeah, so, um, uh, or she came to bed and found it there. I mean, I don't know which it was, but at any rate, had her head been there, like she would be dead. So you don't know moment to moment that you, but right in this moment, right now, you do, you know, exist, you know, you exist. And in this sort of Zen sense, that is all we know for sure that we have. And so it makes me just think, you know, be in the moment, like appreciate the fact that you are alive right now, right here with your little girls or whatever, like who you are right now and just have a reverence for that because that's all you ever know that you have for sure. If that's what you get out of a near-death experience, overall, I think avoiding the near-death experience would probably have been preferable, but that realization is pretty beautiful. Another crazy thing, which is what I said to my friend on the podcast, Paul, about the fact that he'd buried his father once and he was going to have to bury him again. Um, you're potentially going to see your father and that sort of black pit again at some point. Yeah. You may sort of glance off the top of that once and then come back around for a second loop at yeah. some point and then yeah. see it again. I, you know, I was taken to the threshold and then brought back. And so I now know what that, that is like, that place is like. And I got to say, I did not want to go down there. Um, but it seemed like a, a minor transition. It didn't seem like this massive, like, oh my God, I'm dying. Like it seemed in that moment, it seemed like, well, that whatever that next thing is, it's a small step to the left. It's not a huge thing. It's a small thing. And by the time you're dying, death is a, a small transition, right? And dying is a, you know, it, 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 it's a vague thing, right? I mean, you, when you're dying, your body is shutting down, but there's no moment, right, where you just get, you get less and less alive and more and more dead right up into the point where you're almost completely dead and very little bit alive. And then that last little bit seems to be a minor step. And, and there was some, you know, funny way it took the, it took a bit of the mystery out of it. I mean, a, a, a bit of the awe out of it. It's like, Oh, death is just, it, it's, it's a very mundane thing. You know, it's like, it, it, it I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an ordinary thing, right? It's a, it's a very ordinary thing that everybody does. And it's, it's not some transcendent thing. It could just be part of what happened during your day. You know, I mean, it was a very strange perspective on it. Talking about freedom today, and you went from someone who, I guess from the outside looking in as a, a single guy in his late 40s, early 50s, would have had all of the freedom in the world, but then started a family, had two young daughters, got married. Talk me through that experience as someone who's done it later in life. Yeah, I mean, I was so I was married previously, uh, and um, you know, we, my wife and I were still friends. My ex-wife and I are still friends. We broke up on very good terms and and remained sort of like lo loyal to each other as friends throughout that process. Thank God, and uh, I'm very grateful to her for that. Um, but during the the trek that I undertook, I was going through that process of separation and divorce, and it was a very sad, very sad year, and. Um, I was why I should just sort of describe it briefly. So I, my, me and, and a few buddies, we'd all been in a lot of combat, either as soldiers or as journalists. We walked along the railroad lines um, from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, uh, about 400 miles. The railroad lines in this country are these sort of swaths of no man's land that are really not patrolled uh, or monitored by the authorities. And um, 
you can kind of do what you want out there. And, you know, it's a dangerous environment, right? I mean, there are trains going by at 120 miles an hour um, and whatever. They're marginal environments. There are some drifty kind of people out there, whatever. You, you, but it goes through everything, right? The suburbs and the farms and the wilderness and the ghettos and the industrial wasteland. It goes through everything. And we were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and cooking over fires and um, getting our water out of creeks and dodging the police because uh, it's illegal, of course. And, um, every, you know, most nights, as I say in the book, my, my book, Freedom, most light, nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. And that's a form of freedom and uh, and one that's not to be sneezed at. And although there's many other forms as well. But but um you know, after that, yes, I, I, I found myself in a very, very good relationship with a wonderful, wonderful woman. And, um, and we decided to try to have a family and we were lucky. We were blessed and that we, that it happened and we have two little girls and, you know, I've had all kinds of other freedom prior in my life. I, you know, my first daughter was born at age 55 and, um, you know, one of the reasons I try to stay very healthy and athletic is gonna, because I want to stay alive as long as possible, possible for them and for me, for them, you know. And, and uh, so I, I, I felt like I was giving up. Yeah, you're giving up one kind of freedom and you're getting another kind of freedom. But that's always true. Right. I mean, you can give up, you know, temporal freedom and get a high paying job and make a bunch of money and then you have economic freedom. Uh, you can give up, you know, you can give up the sort of safety and stability and predictability of living in a modern society and go into the wilderness and you have the freedom of that, but you're in a fair amount of danger. And if something happens to you, like you have a ruptured appendix, sorry, guy, you're dead. You know, like, so there's, you, you never get all forms of freedom at once. And the form of freedom that I got as you know, as a father, as a as a as a, um, a husband and father, is this profound emotional freedom of be uh, of of love, you know, and 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 uh, you know, in some ways, it's the most un the most boundless form of freedom there is, and it has no limits, no depths. You know, it's as boundless as as it's only limited by you, and uh, and that and, you know, there's something about that 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 uh, you know, maybe it would have been lost on me at age. 20 or 30 or whatever. And that's probably good. I wasn't a dad back then, but thank God I'm a dad now because I, th I, you know, at this point I would have wondered what's life for. That's a beautiful story. It's a really, really beautiful story to hear. Thank you. Thank you. You say that there's a, a tension between freedom and community. How does that play out? Well, you, you are not, um, you're not safe unless you're part of a group. I mean, just in sort of like biological terms, anthropological terms, humans do not survive alone in nature. They die almost immediately. We survive uh, uh, as a biological matter. We survive because we're part of a group. We don't have sharp claws. We don't have sharp teeth. We can't climb trees very well. We can't, we can't run very fast. Uh, although on hot days, we can run, run quite far, which makes us different than, than from, from most other mammals. But, um, we get our safety, our, emo our physical safety, and therefore emotional safety from being part of a group, a survival group. And uh, that means that if you're part of a group, you have to participate, you have to contribute, and you have to abide by group norms. And, you know, if you were in a hunter-gatherer group 50,000 years ago, and you were a young male, 
that the group norm probably expected you to be part of the effort to hunt food, right? And to defend the community with violence, with force, if necessary, from a predator or from a group of a, another group of aggressive humans. That was your job, right? And if you were not willing to do that, you were not fulfilling your your expected role in that community, and you were cast out. Undoubtedly, you were cast out. And I so I looked at the American frontier in Pennsylvania in the 1700s. These the early settlers that went into what was called Indian territory, you know, escaped the sort of control and oppression maybe of the colonial government and, uh, uh, and of the of the church of that era to the wilderness right it, it god god's god's world god's great land right and but the problem is the wilderness was enormously free and enormously dangerous and the way that they re- reduced those risks the settlers was by having basically a, a a mutual defense pact among the sort of families in every area they would build a stockade and if there was a sort of like if, the, if there were Indian raids, um, everyone would collect at the stockade and defend it. And if you were a boy age 14 or over, you were expected to carry a rifle and, and use it and fight in defense of the group. W- women had roles as well, uh, of course, equally vital roles. And um, they would reload the weapons. They would they would attend the wounded. They would try to put out the fires that were started by flaming arrows in the roofs of the buildings, right? So if you were not willing to do those things, you were not wanted, right? You, you know, welcome to, you know, you're welcome to leave now, like if you're not willing to help defend the group. So these settlers got a great freedom in the wilderness, but they had to abide by the norms of the group. They were not free to act selfishly within, within the group. And likewise, you know, I would say just in a very mundane level, like, uh, we are a America is a free country in many important regards, but you are not free to drive on the left hand side of the road as you do in in England. In America, in the United States, you drive on the right hand side of the road. If you drive on the left hand side of the road, you're going to kill somebody. Or if you run a red light, you're going to kill somebody. You are not free to do that. You have to abide by the norms of this particular group, which in this case is a community of 330 million people, all of whom agree that will all drive on the right-hand side of the road to keep highway deaths to a minimum. Is there a pretty, particularly unique tension now that previously the symbiotic relationship between the individual and the group had to work a little bit more hard because the individual could not survive without adhering to the rules of the group, whereas now we have a much more fragmented society that's a lot safer. You don't necessarily need to. Yeah, there's some laws that you need to, but there's the individual has more power as convenience and safety has increased. Well, they they have, you know, they can indulge in the illusion that they don't need the group, but you know, we're all putting gasoline into our cars that is drilled by other people. We're eating food that other people grew. We're living in homes for the most part that other people built. Uh we're 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 dependent, we're outsourcing our our defense and survival needs to the fire department and to uh, doctors and nurses and uh, to the police and to soldiers for that matter. And, you know, every, every, every survival task that confronted uh, um, small scale organic societies in modern society has been outsourced, right? So you don't grow your own food, but at, you know, you have to be at work at 9 AM and you work till 5 PM and maybe you're, Maybe you're paid half a million dollars a year, or maybe you're paid $30,000, whatever it is. Maybe you're doing well or not well within that system, but that system is providing your basic survival needs, and in return, you're giving it your time, right? You're not temporally free. 
right? But you're free from the sort of most immediate threats to your survival, uh, at least in sort of evolutionary human terms. Um, so the idea that you're like, oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm an American citizen and I don't need anybody. I'm blah blah blah, like just complete nonsense, right? Listen, man, the gun you're carrying, that you're, you're, the gun that you're like showing up at the state house with to, to show what a badass you are and how free you are, that gun was made by somebody else. The ammo was made by somebody else. The pickup truck you drove down, to, you know, drove down there was made by somebody else, and the gasoline that's in the tank was made by somebody else. You are not free at all, and. Humans never have been. We have never existed alone in nature. We live in groups. The group that we all live in in modern society is an extremely large, complicated group with a huge supply chain that is so complicated that it really needs some kind of like federal oversight and regulation to keep it running well. And countries that don't have that, like Somalia or Afghanistan, the supply chain is very unreliable. There's a black market economy that's extremely exploitative and there's a huge amount of corruption. So, you know, like if you think you're doing not doing well in this country with federal oversight, go to Somalia. You, 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 will, you will be blessed with no federal oversight. See how it goes. What do you class as the opposite of freedom? Because some people would say like tyranny or something, but I'm guessing that's maybe a little bit rough hewn. Well, I mean, again, uh, I mean, I hope I'm not sort of hiding behind, you know, anthropology and biology, but in, in uh, in longstanding human terms, the most immediate threat to your freedom was an enemy group that would come in and kill or enslave you, right? That was the most immediate uh, threat to, to the to your freedom, and by you I mean you and your community, right? You and your tribe, uh, you and your and your loved ones. Um, the word freedom is is taken from the Middle German uh, freedom. Um, which means beloved. So in that sense, people who were free were the people around you in your community, the, the, the people who were beloved by you. And strangers, foreigners, outsiders, did not necessarily have the right to freedom, right? I mean, if you could kill and enslave them, they were your slaves, right? I mean, they like, they didn't have... There was no international law, right? There was no human rights law. There was no international standards like that of human rights and human dignity. Basically, the only people you were you could not morally kill or enslave were people within your own community. The term murder applied to those people. Killing the enemy was not murder, right? That was killing the enemy. And so freedom, the essential meaning of freedom is that the people you and your beloved, your community, are without an a, an outside oppressor, right? Which means you can oppress other people, but you yourselves are not being oppressed, right? That's the meaning of the word freedom. So, so, so in the modern world, I would say we still have to pay sort of homage to that original meaning. If you are safe from the predations of an outside enemy group, you are in a very, very important sense free. The way you do that is being a well-armed, well-organized state that can repel the the attacks of an invader, the, the, the uh, of an aggressor. But if you're well-armed enough and well-organized enough to, to to defeat the enemy, then an abusive leader has an apparatus, a security apparatus that is well-armed and well-organized enough to oppress his own people, to basically turn his own people into serfs which is what the elite of Europe did throughout the entire 
medieval era, right? I mean, the, the, the era of serfdom that essentially, that essentially ended with the Enlightenment and, and then with the revolutions in France and America and elsewhere, that system um, was one of elite power and, uh, and, and essentially serfdom. Every, people had no legal rights. You couldn't sue the king, right? The king could kill you and you had no, your family had no recourse. Uh, you could rape and plunder and pillage as much as you wanted if you were royalty, right? There was no democracy brought an end to that. And the laws that applied to the commoners, to, to everyone, also applied to the to the elite. Um, obviously, democracy falls a little bit short on that. But but at least in theory, that was that was the idea. So that's how you keep. I mean, basically, there's freedom from an oppressor. And out, there's freedom from an enemy, and then there's freedom from an oppressor within your own society. And what democracy tries to do is have a well-equipped state that can defend itself and have a system of laws that defends the populace, populace against an unscrupulous ruler. So you've got three uh, identifiers for ways that people and groups can become free, as in run, fight, and think. But it sounds like coordinating is actually the first thing that everybody needs to do. There's a there's a pre-step to all of that. Well, yeah, I mean, societies coordinate, right? I mean, that's what a society is. So that's just taken as a given. <clears throat> um, but uh, there is no state of human evolution where a bunch of individuals are like, oh, this isn't working on our own out here in the jungle. Let's get together and do this. That, that never happened, right? I mean, we, our closest relatives are chimpanzees. Um, we, we split from, the, from chimpanzees about six million years ago. Uh, 99% or 98% of our DNA is indistinguishable from chimpanzee DNA. Uh, We're very, very closely related to them. We are social primates and always have been. So in my book, Freedom, what I wanted to figure out was how do humans, alone among mammals, uh, maintain their their autonomy, their freedom, in the face of a larger, more powerful foe? Um, So individual combatants, a smaller man can defeat a larger man. I mean, one of the interesting things about mixed martial arts in its early days is that they had no weight categories. And there are plenty of examples of smaller smaller fighters who handily defeated larger larger adversaries. Inconceivable in the primate world, right? in the rest of the primate world. You know, likewise, smaller coalitions can defeat larger coalitions. The Montenegrins in the 1600s, um, a wild mountain tribe were invaded by the Ottoman Empire, one of the dominant militaries of the era. The, the Montenegrins were outnumbered 12 to 1, right? The, the, the Ottomans had cavalry, artillery, you know, all the advantages that America had in fighting the Taliban. And the Montenegrins handed them their hat, right? I mean, they, that over and over again, they defeated the Ottomans and expelled them from their land. And um, inconceivable except for humans. So I tr- was trying to figure out how does this work? So basically the first a, 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 a underdog group, the first thing that they try to do when they're dealing with an oppressor is outrun them. So the Apache in the American Southwest, unlike the Pueblo societies that were rooted in place because they're agriculturalists, they were much more wealthy, they were sedentary, they didn't have the option of fleeing. They were rolled by the Spanish immediately, sometimes within hours of the confrontation. They, 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 they were defeated or surrendered to the Spanish, where the Apache maintained, after first contact, the Apache maintained their autonomy for another three centuries, right? Almost to within my, my grandmother's life, right? My grandmother was born in 1900. There were, there were bands of free Apache who survived almost until 1900, right? Because they were mobile, they were free. 
Um, but if you can't outrun your enemy, you're going to have to outfight him. And that's where this amazing dynamic comes in that with humans, um, either on one-on-one -on -one combat or, or in coalitionary combat, the smaller group, the smaller individual can actually win, um, which means that larger groups like the United States eventually, you know, winds up negotiating with, with smaller groups like the Taliban. I hate the Taliban. I, they're loathsome, right? No respect for women's rights, for human rights. Um, but I got to say, if the smaller group always lost, there would, no, there would be no freedom in the human experience. The, the world would be composed of large fascist megastates that impose their will on everybody else. That's not what the world looks like. Um, and then finally, if you're within a society, you know, this, this is how you deal with an en you know, enemies, right? You run or you fight. But how do you deal with oppression within your own society? If you're being oppressed by the government or, or business interests or what have you, how do you, what do you do? You have to outthink them. You're now in a chess game, right? You're not going to run away and, and you can't defeat them in outright combat. How do you do it? So I looked at the labor movement uh, in the United States about 100 years ago. Uh, I looked at the Easter Rising in Dublin and in Ireland in 1916 around the same era. Um, you, you know, these, these are groups that are completely outgunned by the power, the established powers, you know, military, government and corporate powers, completely outgunned. And yet they managed to eventually achieve their purposes. And uh, one way, one very important thing to do, I looked at successful underdog groups. And one thing they had in common is they often incorporate women. Um, not necessarily into the front lines of combat, but into the sort of matrix of the revolutionary movement, the insurgency. Uh, women have lateral networks. Uh, men are very top-down hierarchical. That's very important when it comes to charging machine guns. Uh, <coughs> it's essential. But women's lateral networks are also very important because they're almost impossible for the, the, the state, for the, authority, the authorities to, to penetrate, to infiltrate. Um, to decapitate. You can't do it. It's a lateral network like a spider web. Very, very important. And the other thing is that women on a, you know, sort of on a, on a, in a social movement, you put women on the front lines of a strike or a protest, it makes it very, very hard for the police to use force. They will. Of course, it happens. Uh, but there, there is a sanction against violent, using violent, mass violent, public mass violence against women that isn't quite as strong as it is for men. A group of men uh, protesting in the street look like a mob. A group of women protesting in the street, they look like a social movement and you open up with the machine guns on them and it's very problematic for the, uh, for the government, for the dictatorship, what, whatever it may be. And so this, the, the, in the labor movement in Lawrence, Massachusetts in, in, uh, in 1912, uh, they were confronting National Guard with fixed bayonets, and the men were sort of powerless to confront this show of force. So they started putting women on the front line of the protests. And these young boys in uniform with fixed bayonets did not know what to do. They're looking at, w at women just like their sisters and their mothers or maybe their daughters. Right. And and one frustrated police captain said he said one 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 good cop can handle 10 men. But it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And they did not quite have the manpower to handle those protests. And that tipped the balance. Um, and the other thing that these underdog groups have, in, uh, successful underdog groups have in common, is leaders that are willing to die for the cause.
uh, literally willing to die for the cause. And um, if you don't have that, if you have leadership that's sort of hiding behind the people that they lead, either literally or figuratively, uh, leaders who will not accept blame, who will not take risk, who, who, will, who will not own mistakes, uh, who will not expose themselves to gunfire if it's actually a shooting situation. You have leaders like that. They're really not leaders. They're opportunists. It does not work. Yeah, there's, you see this echo symbolically in stories and in movies as well. The leader of the goody side is always the guy that's charging into battle. He'll stay behind to help the wounded man and carry him on his shoulder. Whereas the leader of the baddies, he's always up in some ivory tower commanding people around. And then it's the good guy that will eventually rise up the lift and fight through all of the layers and then eventually get to this bourgeois twat that someone, someone needs to kill. So yeah, you right. see this. You see this happen. What was the story with? Was it Michael Malin that you looked at? Yeah, I mean, Michael Malin was an Irish revolutionary in 1916 who commanded a brigade in Dublin, um, and um, you know was eventually caught. I mean, there was a after a week of uh, after a week of combat in in Dublin, um, in bloody combat. I mean, a lot of people died. Uh, and, you know, the Brits were throwing soldiers at the problem, you know, by the thousands and the, and the rebels who had machine guns and were like hiding, you know, you know, sort of in, in, in you know, in sandbag departments. You know, they'd figured this out. They were just mowing down these poor te- British teenagers, um, conscripts. And, you know, but, th- you know, this is the same the same era when, um, you know, they, they the, the British lost 60 thousand men on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, something like that, killed and wounded. If I'm remembering my numbers correctly, it's the, it was the population of County Wicklow in Ireland on one day. That was just the first day and nobody blinked, right? So human life, you know, didn't mean anything. And I'm sure the Irish rebels were like, Jesus, if they treat their own people like that, how are they going to treat us? We don't want to be part of this fiasco, right? So so Michael Mallon was one of the leaders and I think he had four children and he uh, was married and had four children, and you know he was tried as sort of a, a sham trial and uh, not allowed any representation and condemned to death for treason. Uh, and on his way to the jail where they would uh, where they would kill him, he passed the wagon past his home, and he saw his. Was dog that done on on purpose? I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, and, and he, uh, he saw his dog in the yard and he, there, there are these anguished letters that he wrote in the hours before his death. His family was allowed to visit him in the, on his last night. And, um, then he was left alone, um, in his cell with God, presumably he was very religious. And in my book, I have, uh, printed in full is his last desperate letter of of anguish to his wife and and children um and the first sign of light in dawn at dawn they took him from his cell and walked him down to the stonebreaker's yard and stood him before a wall and uh a firing squad leveled their rifles and on command they fired in unison and killed him and and the medical examiner you know, they, they killed, I think, 12 or 14 Irish revolutionaries like this. Um, and uh, including a man named Connolly, who, who was the commander of the Dublin 
Dublin forces that fought the Brits. And, you know, he was wounded twice. I mean, the, you know, the big job that his aides had was to drag him, you know, trying to drag him out of gunfire, you know, because he kept risking his life to command the troops. I mean, he was the epitome of heroic, heroic leadership, right? And he was shot twice, wounded twice. And, and he couldn't even walk to his own death when they executed him. They had to carry him in a stretcher and prop him up in a chair. And, and the medical examiner that was present at these executions said that the only people in the situation that were not nervous, that were not shaking, were the condemned, the condemned men. And the firing squads were all shaking. They were so nervous. They were the fearful ones. And, uh, um, and you know, I should, I, should say, um, I should say that this, what you said about, you know, this sort of like Hollywood movies about villains being these sort of bourgeois twats in a, in a tower, you know, well, getting other men to do their bidding. Um, and, and on the good side, there's a, like a, a selfless leader that, um, that, you know, grabs the flag and charges forward, as it were. You know, what, what we're depicting in the bad guys is our own society. I mean, that is exactly what our leaders are. They're ensconced in, in safe buildings telling other people what to do. And, you know, I get it. It's a modern society and no one wants the president himself leading the charge you know, I mean, it just wouldn't work, right? I mean, it just—I mean, you know, like with like with Connolly, you know, we you know we need those people to to help run the show. So you don't want them taking a bullet. That you know, that's for soldiers to do. But I, I totally get it. But but just to your point about what the sort of bad guys look like, they look like we we make them look like us, and they have leaders. I feel like political leaders in in modern European Western democracies, including America. Um, are sort of notable for their for their moral cowardice. You know, I mean, they they you know they there is no principle they weren't tr they won't trample to further their political interests. Well, that's you know the I mean? equivalent. The equivalent of not taking the bullet is standing by your word. You don't need to stand in front of the gunfire, but if you are to say a thing, you need to not forget that you said that thing three weeks later and pretend that you said something else and try and spin a different line out. I think this is one of the reasons why we have concerns about the trustworthiness of the people at the top. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would vote for someone who was willing to uh, uh, lose an election because he or she felt that the truth was necessary to articulate. So Liz Cheney, I'm a Democrat, right? Liz Cheney is very conservative. And she is standing up to the, you know, the sort of like MAGA Donald Trump world by insisting on reality, right? Insisting on the truth about January 6th and about Donald Trump's efforts to subvert the election. And, and you know, I would vote for her, even though I'm a Democrat, I would vote for her. She's an arch conservative. I would vote for her simply because she is willing to sacrifice her career for the sake of the truth and our democracy and our democratic system. I would vote for her over a Democrat who was not willing to tell the truth in a heartbeat, right? And, but that's the, um, that is now the standard for, for courage is are you willing to tell the truth? And I feel like a lot of politicians actually won't even pass that standard. It's pathetic. It's a pretty low bar. Um, it's a low bar, right? It's absolutely pathetic. And if there weren't such enormous financial rewards for being in government, I mean, Mitch McConnell has $10 million in the bank. Where the hell did Mitch McConnell get 10 million bucks, right? I mean, I'm not sure he got saying he got that illegally, but there's a, a sort of aspect of unseemliness that you have people who are exploiting Dianne Feinstein, uh, a Democrat also. Like, 
has completely violated ethics rules about insider stock trading, right? And um, I, I mean, 37, I think it was 37 congressmen and women have violated, uh, and I'm getting this from Russell Brand, by the way, so you can go check it. You can go check it. But I just interviewed with him a few days ago that I looked up some of his busy videos. So assuming that he has his facts right, I'm sure he does, 37 American congressmen and women have violated their own ethics standards about insider stock trading. Their own standards, that a law that they themselves passed. 37, right? That's not ethical, right? That's immoral. And that and people like that forget about being able to benefit financially. They shouldn't be anywhere near office, uh, a, a public office if they're willing to do that. I mean, that's what, okay, you don't have to take a bullet. That's, you know, politics don't involve literally fighting the enemy in the trenches, right? But at the very least, you can go forego the opportunity to enrich yourself for four years. At the very least, you can do that for us. And they're not even rising to that. It's a severe distance from the philosopher king of the Marcus Aurelius era. You know, when yeah. you, th you think about somebody who's concerned with virtue above all others that will sell the inside of the palace wares to try and pay off the debts of the nation. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why, for me, politics feels like such a wasted endeavor that the understanding of how to limbically hijack the electorate has taken precedent over people actually doing what is good. Like being able to manipulate cognitive biases means that someone who isn't good can appear more good than someone who is. Yeah. That's, that's unfortunately the, the situation that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when if you live in a sort of small scale organic survival group of 30, 40, 50 people, as humans have done for most of their 200,000 years of existence, it's very easy to detect fraud, to detect that kind of duplicity, that kind of dishonesty and cowardice. And it's usually punished by death. I mean, there, there's an anthropologist named Richard Bohm who looked at the application of capital punishment within hunter-gatherer societies, right? And the most common reason for killing one's leader as a hunter in a hunter-gatherer community um, in modern day hunter-gatherer societies and what is known from the last hundred years of anthropology in these societies, the most common reason by far was abuse uh, when leaders abused their position of power and, and, um, and, and work to benefit themselves ahead of other people. Um, I know that there were tribes, native, native tribes in, in, in America, uh, you know, 100 plus years ago, um, where cowardice, you know, a warrior who was who who was cowardly on the battlefield um, was killed by his his fellow warriors. Like you were a coward, man. You didn't defend the tribe. Sorry. Like we're going to do you a favor. You dishonored yourself. We're going to do you. We're going to spare you having to kill yourself. We're going to do it for you. Right. That's leadership. That's selflessness. That is acting on behalf of your tribe. And and lead, you know political leaders now. That's not even on the menu, right? So how do we how do we patrol that that behavior? Monitor that behavior. We're not in groups of 30, 40, 50 people, or 100 people, or 500 people. We're in groups of millions and millions. And you know what it used to be? There was a great thesis that the modern that the that the monotheistic God was invented during the advent of agriculture, when surplus food allowed great numbers of people to live together, basically there were communities of strangers. 
there, you know, anonymity was possible right after the advent of agriculture. And that was when the monotheistic God was sort of invented to an all all seeing, all knowing, punitive God who would punish sin. Right. So the community might not know who you are and you steal a loaf of bread and you get away with it because no one knows who you are, you know, whatever. But God knows who you are. It's a monotheistic, all knowing God. That was invented to control, to, to, to encourage good behavior in, an, in a society that was so large, there was anonymity. Well, now we're basically a godless society. You know, so I'm an atheist, so, you know, I get it. So what do we have in its place? You know, we have CCTV. You know, basically, it's very hard to pick, commit a public crime uh, without it being captured on video. And thank God, right? Because there are lots of very, very bad people who done very bad things, including the, the uh you know, the London Underground bombers of 2004, you know, who were, you know, one of them was captured because there, he was seen, he was seen on, uh, on CCTV cameras. So they were good, you know, they're a good thing. They've taken the place of a monotheistic God. So what, but what do we do now as the electorate? How do we, how do we get people to act that way? We get them to act that way by penalizing at the, at the, at the, at the polling booth, penalizing selfish behavior, dishonest behavior. You know, we have to call it out and we have to call it out in our own party because if we call it out in the other party. Everyone's going to ignore it. We have to call it out among ourselves, among our own. And that's something that the Democrats and the Republicans are uniquely bad at. And, and the country, it's not going to be an honest system until those two parties decide to apply some real morality to their own people. Yeah, game theoretically, it doesn't sound like a good strategy to stop focusing on the enemy and start focusing on the inside. But that's without the luxury of a God's eye view. If you were to say, look, I want the best sort of world community nation that I can do, you need to hold everybody to account, not just the opposition to try and get yourselves back into power. To do what? To have four more years of shitty power? That's not going to get you very far. Thinking about the uh, people riding into battle, I heard a story about a Spartan soldier who was incredibly proficient. He was one of the finest soldiers in the army, and he went into battle naked. So he stripped off all of his armor, stripped off all of his clothes, just went in shield, sword, and spear. And when he got back, he was punished. He was punished by the uh, commanders of the army because he'd endangered a Spartan asset himself. He had endangered one of the assets of the army by being so reckless with the way that he went in. So even somebody, um, that's another control measure. What we're talking about here are uh, control measures, whether they be monotheistic gods that cause you to emergently try and act in the way that you think that you should, whether they be CCTV cameras that dictatorially tell you that if you do not act in the way that you're supposed to, whether they be cultural norms that are kind of this embodied, sensed, communitarian version of this, and you even have when somebody oversteps that mark, when somebody utilizes their skill or their prowess and is wasteful with it uh, in a society like Sparta, where it was all about trying to get the most done, trying to squeeze everything you could out of a small society, even those uh, soldiers were told you can't endanger an asset, even if it's yourself. Well, listen, I'll tell you, I, you know, I've been in a lot of combat with U.S. military, and I, we were in a situation, very bad situation at one point up on a ridge, and the Taliban were on either side of us. There was nowhere to hide, right? And they were about to open up on us. And uh, there was no good place to be. Right. And the only chance we had was by we, I mean, the soldiers I was with, it was to unleash so much firepower back at them 
you know, I mean, we sort of hide by, behind our own firepower, but eventually you run out of ammunition, right? And so it was an extremely exposed place. Uh, everyone had run out of water. It was very hot. So everyone was black on water. It was called black on water. They'd run out of water. They're drinking the fluid in their IV bags. So were people wounded, they wouldn't have IV fluid. It was a desperate situation, and we were getting ready to get hit, and it was going to really suck. And the lieutenant stood up in this sort of awful mo moment of quiet before we were going to get hit. And we could hear it on the ICOMs, on the radio chatter from the enemy, like, okay, we've got them. They have nowhere to hide. They are done, right? And we were waiting for this hurricane of, of lead, right? And the, the lieutenant stood up. Uh, I mean, the only place you can be is like on the ground, as close to the ground as possible. So standing up in this situation, I can't tell you how hard that would be to do, right? And the man stood up to look around to see where his heavy weapons were, were positioned to make sure that they were in the best possible position. Again, think Connolly in Dublin in 1916. He stood up to see where the heavy weapons were, were placed, the 240s, uh, particularly to make sure they were placed right. And the, the staff sergeant that was right next to me said, sir, please sit down. We need you. We need you to stay alive. It's your job to make decisions. It's our job to get shot at. And the staff sergeant stood up. And he said, tell me what you need. Well, tell me what you need to know and I'll find it out. And you take, please take cover. And so that's exact. that is leadership. And when corporations sometimes bring me in as a consultant to like how to make their corporation like feel more like a tribe so that basically there's more like group loyalty by the workers. So they'll produce more and everyone gets richer. Right. Particularly the leadership. Uh, when they bring me in for that consultation, I say, look, you have to be a leader. A leader makes sure that they may, they may benefit disproportionately when things go well. No problem. Right. Leadership should be rewarded disproportionately is higher responsibilities, takes more experience, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's a downturn and people are going to make less or people are going to have to be fired, the leadership of this company has to experience the negative consequences before the people they lead or at least with them. Right. So before you fire anybody, you have to get rid of your year end bonus. Right. And if you don't, that's not leadership. That's you're you're just running a company at that point. You're not leading a company. You're running a company. If you keep your year end bonus and fire people because there's a downturn in the market, you're just running a damn company. You're not leading it. If you want to lead it, if you want loyalty, you need to lead it. And if you lead it, you will make it clear that you will suffer consequences right alongside the people that are trusting you. Not a welcome message in the corporate world, I should add. Yeah, I bet it's not. I should. Uh, it makes me think about an example. So I run nightclubs. I have done for a very long time. I've stood on the front door of a lot of them. And part of that, me and my business partner have been the directors of this company since we were 18. We've always been the top of the tree. And then we've just added in people below us all the way up. Every single night that we run an event, one of us stands on the front door of the nightclub. And we're in Newcastle, which is the Winterfell of the UK, right? It's the final city before Scotland. In the winter, it gets brutally cold. It's wet. It's, it's dark. It's miserable. We stand on the front door of the night. Every single one. There has never been an event that we've operated where somebody hasn't stood there. We have always been there right next to the boys, right next to the event managers, right next to the door staff that kick people out. And we'll freeze our nuts off on the door along with them. And 
for a long time, people have asked, what is it that you do? We don't do that much. The whole purpose of us creating a business that runs in a slick and organized way is that it's so self-sufficient that everybody knows the jobs that need doing beforehand. And there are a lot of nights where we stand there and I feel like a spare part. I'm like, well, I'll just, I'll just make sure that the DJ's drinks are topped up again. You almost end up doing the, the most sort of surplus, ridiculous jobs right. because there isn't anything for you to do. But it's less about the fact that you're there to do a job and it's more about the fact that symbolically you are there with the rest of the group. Look, it's freezing, it's cold, it's going to be a shit Thursday in the middle of January. It's, we're going to do 400 people tonight when we should do 1,000 and that's what, break even's 500 people. So we're going to lose money and I'm going to get out of bed at 10 p.m. at night and I'm going to stand on the front door of a nightclub with you for five hours and there's going to be drunk people and they're going to come plain but we're all going to do it together and a big part of that that we see as well is in small businesses like ours that's quite hierarchical uh there's lots of different little layers that we create so people can progress and it feels like they're being promoted and stuff the guys that get the most respect are the ones that people have seen enter the company at the absolute bottom they started flyering and doing street pr and giving out guest list bands trying to get people in then they were the guest best guest lister then they became a junior event manager and they smashed it at that. Then they become a full event manager and they smashed it at that. Then a senior, then a city manager. And people see this lineage of them going up bit by bit by bit. And they know that they've earned their stripes. They yeah. know that they have the chops to be able to do the thing that they are telling you to do. They've done yeah. it. I've done thousands mm. and thousands of knocks on doors. We got to the point where my knuckles were bleeding during my uh, gap year because I was knocking on the doors of so many different halls of residence to say, hey, you coming out tonight? Hey, you coming out tonight? So I've been there. But the only reason that I can tell my boys to go and do that is because I've done it as well. I'm like, look, this is a fucking rite of passage. This is what you do. If you want to get to the stage where you can have your own company or where you can be paid the sort of money that you want to be paid, like step into the fire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, right. You're signaling that you're part of the group. You're not outside it. You're not above it. And I was thinking uh, this morning, actually, I was sort of, what's the definition? You know, I wrote a book called Tribe. You know, it's hard to define what a tribe is. And and um, some people think that, oh, if you're, a, you know, a football fans, football fans are all like one tribe. But they're not a tribe, right? I mean, they have, they're a group of people that have a common interest, but they're not a tribe in, in a meaningful human sense. And so the, the definition I sort of came up with this morning was um, the idea of what happens to you happens to me. We're in the same tribe because that's true. And you were saying that to the people that were working for you. Like, if you got to stand out there in the cold, I'm going to stand out there in the cold. Now, I may be completely useless. And if they say to you, listen, sir, why don't you get it, go inside and, and get warmed up? It sucks out here. We got this. Like the lieutenant in my story, you're, you then you, you can honorably step down, right? You can honorably say, okay, I, I understand. Thank you. Appreciate it, right? Um, uh, I mean, there's no merit in being stupid either, right? Isn't, but, yeah, isn't it interesting that that kind of has to be gifted yeah. from below? It's not the sort of thing that you can bestow upon yourself. But lead, lead, I mean, real leadership is, is, is given from below. Right. It's it's by it's by the consent of the lead. Um, imposing leadership, it really isn't leadership. Right. I mean, that, you know, when, when it's sort of imposed from above and that's the problem with inherited wealth, it's not earned. And you have a huge amount of social and economic capital that can be imposed on other people. And it hasn't been granted by them and it, ha and, 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 and it, and it hasn't been earned. And so but when the people that you're leading ask you to take care of yourself 
like we need you, right? Then you're good. And it's because you have signaled to them what happens to you happens to me until you tell me otherwise, right? And then I will step inside and have a cup of coffee Warm or whatever. Up. Yeah, exactly. Whatever it may be. And, you know, in the, in the Marines, um, there's, a, there's a motto, um, officers eat last, right? Well, in a situation like that, what you may well have is enlisted men saying, sir, you know, please get a plate of food. Like, you know, like we understand that officers eat last. We appreciate it. Now, can you please feed yourself? You know, we, you know, we respect and admire you and we want you to eat. And, you know, so that's the, that's the honorable way to do it. And likewise, Connolly in Dublin, you know, his, you know, his, it, it took his aide sort of dragging him out of gunfire, uh, you know, to keep him safe. He wasn't going to do it on his own, uh, but he would do it for, for others. One of the things that I've found that's been quite interesting is how uh, stresses from the outside uh, cause groups to stick together. So when freedoms get threatened, a community suffers a collective trauma or whatever, people usually bind together. What I've found really interesting is that I don't think we've seen that up against the global threat of COVID over the last 18 months. Yeah, I mean, the problem with COVID is, is that there was a lot of mixed messaging by political leaders. Um, I mean, my political leader at the time, Donald Trump, started by saying it didn't exist. There wasn't a threat at all, right? And then he continued to have very confusing messaging about masks and vaccines. And, you know, to the point where it's completely hypocritical. I mean, the entire administration was vaccinated and so was all of Fox News. And yet the messaging coming out of those groups was that vaccinations were somehow a plot by the left to take, you know, whatever. I mean, just complete nonsense, right? So when you have uh, political leadership and very powerful people that are actually um, endangering the public for their own political benefit, um, you're not going to have a healthy response to, to COVID. Right? So I, get, I get that for the USA, but I don't think I've seen a particular wonderful sense of belonging and coming together really anywhere on the planet. Maybe you could argue that the, uh, the USA are culturally so influential that if they cough, everybody else catches a cold of COVID, of misinformation perhaps. Um, but there was, do you remember that video? I think it was in Italy and there was someone singing on a rooftop and there was balconies all the way around and they were all watching. And there was another period where maybe in Spain or Italy, again, somewhere in Europe, someone was doing a workout routine on their own rooftop and all of the people on their balconies overlooking that were doing it as well. Now that, to me, that was one of the moments where you go, wow, that's sort of human spirits really binding together. Everybody is in this. Yeah. We know, I know what it's like to be locked down in the UK. Yeah, I don't live in New York the same as you. Yeah, my life situation is different to yours. But I kind of know what it feels like to be locked in my own house because of this pathogen yeah. that's outside. So we have more of a shared experience now yeah than we probably ever did before. And it's the same for people that are in China and in Vietnam and in Australia and everywhere. There's always been that argument made, if Earth was threatened by an alien species, imagine how quickly our differences would be forgotten because we would bind together. And you get that, I think it's called, is it the globe effect that astronauts get once they've been out to space and they view right. the Earth without borders and they come back and they realize we are just one race, one species, blah, blah. Um, I hoped... 18 months ago that COVID was going to be that thing. And it just hasn't, it doesn't seem to have occurred anywhere. Well, it's not an existential threat, right? I, I mean, I mean, it's, it's way worse than the flu. It's a deadly disease. Um, and it's communicable. Uh, 
you know, unlike unlike some things, but but it, it's not it's not an exist, existential threat to society. And you know, I think what the sort of skeptics were saying is that the, the protections against COVID are an existential threat because it'll cripple the economy, blah blah blah. That's where the debate happens. But look, the Black Death in Europe, um, in what was the 12, 13, 1300s, 1200s, 1300s, killed one out of three people, right? That's an existential threat, right? And if COVID were killing one out of three, thank God it wasn't. But if it was killing one out of three, I think you might have seen a, a sort of different reaction. But even to the extent we lost, we've lost 600,000 people in this, in this country, right? Um, but, you know, if you lose 600,000 people during an alien attack, it'll traumatize the nation for, for a century, right? Like, I mean, that gets your attention. The problem with the 600,000 is it's spread out, spread out over a couple of years, and it's happening invisibly in ICUs around the country. And it's, you know, in some ways, it's sort of theoretical, sort of abstract. And, but even despite all that, and despite the fact that we had to stay away from people in order to protect people, which is deeply antithetical to sort of human human reflexes during the crisis. But even so, I think there was actually a fair amount of sort of solidarity of the, of the, of the sort that you described in New York City. People were, I think it was at 5 p.m. every night, people were leaning out of their windows, banging pots and pans for the healthcare workers that were working in the, in the ERs, in the hospitals. So, you know, I think um, for a modern society that's very, very fractured and alienated, there was actually a fair amount of sort of like communal sentiment around all of this. Yeah, it makes me realize why false flag events by governments have seemed alluring over time. You know, you look at trying to do a thing, trying to have some catastrophe occur that forces, that's what they're actually doing. They're trying to artificially inseminate this sense of binding together. Here is the threat. There is something happening out there and we need to bind together. We need you to come together as one. That's what they're trying to enact. That's right. And the problem is they are, at least in my country right now, um, they are politically, they are doing that with half the country. They're saying half the country is a threat to this country. That if you're a Republican, the Democrats, the socialist, communist, godless, like Black Lives Matter, Democrat, anarchists are a threat to this country, right? So they're, what they're saying is that half of the country are literally the enemy, right? The enemy. They're not the beloved, right? They're not the, the definition of you know freedom. They're not. They don't deserve freedom. They don't deserve to be free. They're the enemy, right? They're not one of us. The Democrats, I don't think, do it in the same way and not as uh, not as sort of virulently as the Republicans have lately. But they they have a bit of that as well. And so when you when you cast your own people as the enemy of the state, you're you are creating civil war. You are that is one of the steps to fascism. Right. I mean, that's a classic the one, a classic step in the fascist playbook is take the political opponents and say, not only do I disagree with them, not only are they not nice people, they're actually an enemy of this country and they must be eradicated. And that's how you get fascism. It's a classic, classic move in the fascist playbook. And that's one of the things that really bothers me about the last few years in this country. We have a very robust democracy and we have a, an, a, a military which is absolutely loyal to democratic ideals, whether it be a Republican or a Democratic president. They don't really care. Um, my father grew up in Spain and left when, when Franco came, Franco and the fascists came in and Franco succeeded because he had the military behind him. That will never happen in this country. And therefore, in my opinion, fascism will never come to this country. But boy, it's 
awfully ugly to see the sort of preparatory steps in action, uh, even if it will never come to that. It's crazy when you create in-group, out-group dynamics within a nation when there's other things that need to be worried about. And this is, I think, why the people that have done research into China and into Russia and into sort of long-term trajectories and concerns about what's happening to the globe, that's the ones who are, you know, standing in the middle of the street with a megaphone desperately saying, look, there are bigger fucking problems out there. There are really bigger problems. There's this quote from your book that says, if the enemy is not going to show mercy, you might as well fight to the death. Freedom as a supreme value was born out of the fact that there were really no alternatives worth considering, and the result was that the freest people were the most warlike. What that sounds like is kind of a race to the bottom or a, a race to uh, extremity, uh, extremity. And when you have that enacted against a, another nation, you end up securing your own nation. But when you start to play this self-referential game within a country, what you end up with is ever escalating tensions, ever more malicious uh, strategies in order to be able to manipulate people and make the other side seem like the bad guys and make you seem like the good guys. And that's why it doesn't surprise me again that we don't really know what politicians think or what the truth is or what's going on. Yeah, and, and you can read the, the word warlike to mean uh, best able to defend themselves, right? And um, if you can't defend yourself, you're not going to be free for very long because an enemy will come along and dominate you. And uh, that was has been true for, I think, all of human history. Um, and there's plenty of, exam of examples. But the, the great thing about democracy is that it, and international law is it sort of has taken care of that problem, right? There are coalitions of nations that, that have treaties, you know, mutual defense pacts. So you you know you 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 attack Belgium you're attacking the whole EU you attack Belgium you're attacking NATO right you're you know all of a sudden you're attacking half the world and so it keeps you know it has a state those treaties have a stabilizing effect um, and and uh, you know I would I would say that the um, when you when you cast when you cast people as an enemy now. Um, we're in a situation, at least in America, we, we, we really cannot plausibly in, be invaded by anybody, right? So when you cast people in, as an enemy, it's a pretty much a sort of naked attempt to just reinforce your political base. There really is not a threat to this country, not from the other political party, not from Black Lives Matter, uh, not from China. I mean, there are economic threats, but, you know, whatever, but they're, but they're not a threat in the sense that enemy is used, the word is usually taken. And it's a it's a naked political ploy, and you know it really should be called out because it is, it is the beginning of the end of our, of, of democracy. It's it's going to destroy it. Sebastian Junger, ladies and gentlemen, freedom will be linked in the show notes below. You are not on social media, so there's nothing else for people to keep up to date with. Do you have a blog or a website or anything? Uh, I have a website, SebastianYunger.com. J U N G E R is my the spelling of my name. Uh, my publisher started some social media accounts for me. Um, I have a flip phone. Here, I'll show it. I'll prove it. I have a flip phone. I'm not interested in social media, but um, uh, I can't, I, I've discussed, and I, I hate the idea of tweeting meaningful things 140 characters at a time, but I have taken to posting sentences from my book, Freedom, on Twitter with, with photographs uh, and sentences that often involve the concept of freedom just for people to share and debate. So I do do that a little bit. I'm pretty easy to find in that way. So um, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it.
Yeah.